Hello and welcome to the Ulster Rugby Roundup, your one-stop shop for all things Ulster Rugby from the Belfast Telegraph. Adam McKenzie with you as for always. Plenty to get into this week. Well, we've, we've been given plenty by Ulster with a surprise signing, confirming the squad for next season. We've obviously got a quarterfinal to look forward to this weekend against Munster. And I think we'll probably take a short look back on the, what was a Champions Cup final that I think neither of us predicted last week. I say neither of us. I've got Jonathan Bradley with me, who's going to help me look back on it. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. I think you're doing yourself with this service, because whether it was uh, tongue-in-cheek or whether it was just to be contrary, you did actually tell me that La Rochelle were going to win. So. Oh, it was absolutely just tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> I, I did not think for a second <laughs> that La Rochelle were actually going to win that game. If uh, you make a prediction on a 12-point underdog that comes off, whether you meant or not, or whether it was just uh, just to argue with me, you should absolutely get us uh, essentially just your own foresight. Well, I, I'd like to claim that I'm now some sort of rugby Nostradamus, but really I went into that game and whenever Leinster got the two early penalties, I was like, what have I done by actually even joking that La Rochelle were going to win this on last week's podcast? Because I remembered it, like when it, whenever Sexton put those two kicks over, the first thing I thought was, I said that La Rochelle could win this game, and they absolutely could not. And then they ended up winning the game. So clearly, I'm, I'm either some kind of mystic meg of rugby, and I've got to back myself, or I, I've just got to start coming up with more really bizarre predictions that could potentially come true. Like, I, I'm going to back Glasgow, Edinburgh, uh, and and Munster to win this weekend, that's that's probably going to end up coming true now. That's what I was going to say. What, what are your what are your thoughts on Glasgow's chances of victory? But um, I think the kicking of penalties was interesting in the Champions Cup final because it's not something that we've seen from Irish teams and obviously with the different coaches, but at a huge number of the same players. Leinster play in a very similar vein to Ireland. It's been well documented how Ireland essentially stopped kicking for... Uh, the posts in and around 2016. So something that I find particularly striking about the game was Leinster's willingness to take their points in the face of what admittedly was repeated ill-discipline from La Rochelle, especially in that first half. But I mean, I'd be curious to know what you thought about, obviously their lineup wasn't functioning particularly well, but you know, even after the yellow card, when you've got Will Skelton as the sole lock for La Rochelle in what would have been a lineout, we still saw Leinster taking the points and obviously it wasn't enough. Like it was very, to me, it reminded me very much of an Irish side playing in the sort of first half of the last decade in the sense that it was relatively dogged. They were hanging in there and they were just taking the opportunity to knock over points whenever it came, but without ever really displaying any more ambition than that. And for me, anyway, it meant that you came away from that game almost feeling like Leinster didn't really fire a shot, which is what struck me as so bizarre because you never see that from them. The only thing I'll say about the penalties is that so many of them were right in front of the posts. And I suppose whenever you're in a final, there is obviously that mentality mind shift of, if we don't kick these points, then they're going to come back to haunt us. Now, obviously, as we know from watching Ulster this season, you go to the corner, you potentially come away with seven points. And whenever Ulster have such a good mall, they come away with so many points in that way. But whenever you get to a final and you're talking at the end of this game, we'll either be looking back and saying, it was great we went for the corner or we passed up three guilt edge points you know the the majority of kicks that Irish teams would put into the corner are still not necessarily right on the touchline but most of them are in a position where you're bringing in that element of doubt of whether they're going to be kicked over and that obviously makes a massive difference for Leinster the majority of their penalties were somewhere within the two posts so it, it just makes it that much more difficult to turn down a kick in a final whenever it's like that. 
the bigger thing to me was I think La Rochelle just got that set piece dominance that really rocked Leinster for the whole game. And I think that was something that maybe Leinster weren't even didn't even let come into their mindset going into the game. Because if, if you think about how Leinster sort of take on teams, whenever it comes to these big games, they're not necessarily dominant, but they always have parity. For them to be walked over in the scrum surely then bleeds down into the line-out as well. And whenever the line-out's maybe not quite so rock-solid and you have Dan Sheehan coming on so early, look, Dan Sheehan's a great player, don't get me wrong, I'm not, <laughs> this isn't like detracting from Dan Sheehan, but whenever you've had to make that change so early in a game, there is that sort of nagging doubt in the back of your mind of, we've, we've turned to this guy far earlier than we have to. There's there's probably going to be some things he has to get up to speed with. I, I don't necessarily think they were wrong kicking for the posts. I think, I've, I do agree with you that it's not what Leinster have done all season. It's not what Irish provinces have done all season. But equally, in a, in a final, you, you do kind of have to take your points and you have to make sure that you don't come away going, what if we kick that one penalty, especially if it's in front of the post? Yeah, I mean, obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you have to acknowledge the players have a greater understanding of the flow of the game being involved in it. But I suppose, you know, I would come away from that game, and obviously the most telling stat is the most simple one, the fact that La Rochelle scored three tries and Leinster didn't score any. Like, I agree with you on the on the set-piece point. It looked to me like La Rochelle got the upper hand in the set-piece early, and whether it be... Scar tissue from the last season's game against La Rochelle and the games against Saracens in previous seasons. It almost felt as if there was a here we go again sense, and Leinster ended up almost rattled too early. And you know they got out of their sh- they got out of their shape very quickly. They um, to me, looking at what they normally do in those situations, they get out of um, their usual habits a little bit too early and. Look, all this is being said about a game that with 60 seconds left, um, they were leading. But I think we would both agree that if they had have won that game, regardless of that last uh, 60 seconds or 90 seconds of play, it would have been one of the more fortuitous final victories in recent memory. Oh, yeah, I'll agree 100% with that. And for all the talk coming in that Leinster were almost turning up just to lift the trophy. La Rochelle really put it up to them. And I think whenever you look at how good Hugo Keenan has been this year, and he wasn't at fault for the first try, but just how easily uh, Raymond Rule was able to step inside him to go over after, you know, is it, I can't remember which O'Brien it was. There's so many of them these days playing for Leicester. There's Jimmy O'Brien out, out on the wing. He steps in to try and deal with Doolan. Doolan gets the hand away and, um, sorry, it wasn't Doolan, it was um, Leeds, Dylan Leeds, wasn't it? Who yeah, got the, the offload away the to... The wingers combined, yeah. Yeah, so Leeds gets the offload away to Rule. Rule steps inside Keenan, all of a sudden La Rochelle are over. You know, that's something that Leicester have been so reliant upon this year, is just having that rocked-solid, watertight defender in Hugo Keenan. And again, it's not a bad missed tackle, because... Rule has got a head of steam up. He gets that step away. And I think there's maybe only one or two fullbacks in the world who's able to stop him from that position. And they're probably standing in a slightly different position than Keenan was whenever he made that tackle. But it was just everything that La Rochelle did was just timed at the perfect moment to knock Leinster off their stride. And the biggest one for me was Leinster not fully taking advantage of that yellow card to Thomas Laveau. Like that should have been punished a lot more because it's such a stupid thing to do in a final. And I reckon he is probably the most relieved man in all of France uh, right about now that sticking a foot out and tripping up Jamison Gibson Park didn't cost them any more because <laughs> if Leinster had gone on to win it from there, he probably would have had to be escorted back into La Rochelle in the back of a police car. So, you know, that, that was probably where it swung back to La Rochelle's favour whenever you knew that... Leinster weren't going to fully punish them for an act of pure stupidity late in a final. I think that's when the game got away from them. Yeah, I mean, that was looked like it was going to be the turning point because La Rochelle at that stage had all the momentum and then you get this sort of brain-dead yellow card that looked like 
it was really going to be one of the more infamous <laughs> moments in uh, European final history because, it, you know, you never know for certain. But at that stage, it looked like that was what was going to cost La Rochelle the win because I think at that stage, even though Leinster had the lead, the way that they were playing was the much bigger story at the time because it didn't look like they were going to be capable of holding out. And then you almost think that, you know, this yellow card and the three, the accompanying three points, regardless of whether I think that they should have gone to the corner with it or not, looked like it could have just drained all the energy from, from La Rochelle. But, you know, you, you saw them even still. Now, we've talked about Leviani Bodia before on this podcast, but um, even with him available to go into the scrum, I think it says plenty about La Rochelle's set-piece confidence that they um, were still opting for the scrum, even though they had a lock in the bin. Yeah, I think your guy, um, was it Haddad, went into into the second row? Or was it was it Liebenberg? One of the two flankers went into the second row and Bodia came onto the flank. And that's such a... I, I know not all teams can do it, but having that ability to bring someone on and actually go into a position that he, he already plays, even though he is a centre, is so valuable. But I just love the scenes looking on, on Twitter and seeing all the fans in La Rochelle going crazy after the win. You just saw how much it meant to them. All the fans thronged around the bus as it as it drove down the main street. And we, we've both been there and we know what that's like. You know, it's <laughs> the people in La Rochelle are mad about their rugby. And I think that's the kind of thing that gets lost. I'm, I'm not saying that Leinster fans wouldn't have appreciated a European Cup win, of course they would, and they would have celebrated like crazy. But I think you really get a an appreciation for how much it means to a club like La Rochelle that were nowhere as recently as maybe seven or eight years ago. They they weren't European competitors. They weren't top fourteen competitors. They they did their time down in the Pro Day de, like this is a team that has come up. And I saw someone comparing them to. Exeter essentially saying that they are France's Exeter to see what that club has done going from sort of mid-table obscurity in France to taking on John O'Gibbs and becoming a contender and now Ron Nogar is taking them on seems to have even managed to elevate them to another level to become European champions it's just great to see a club like that doing so well yeah absolutely um even to see you know guys like uh Danny Perso who was um obviously playing his last game for the club, but had played in that playoff final as well in 2014. And there were a few others as well, just to still have that link back to, as you say, whenever they were plugging away in the second tier there. But I know I know we're, we're going to get on the Ulster quickly here, but I suppose just a word as well for the job that Ronan O'Gara has done, essentially having won everywhere that he's gone as a coach and having taken such a uncomfortable, I suppose would be a fair word, to describe his coaching journey so far because it would have been very easy for him just to stick to what he knows, but to go out, to experience Racing 92, uh, to experience the Crusaders, to experience La Rochelle, it's all obviously, I think, going to stand him in a coaching career when I think everybody hopes that he will come back to Ireland one day, whether that be for the Monster gig or as looks increasingly like the case, the national gig whenever comes available. And I know all European finals are equal to sort of paraphrase George Orwell, but I'm sure a win over Leinster in a final is just that little bit sweeter for Ronan O'Gara, even after all these years. Oh, I don't think Ronan O'Gara would give a second thought to the fact that he uh, that he beat Leinster when everybody spent the preceding week talking, myself included, talking about how great Leinster were without giving his side a chance at all. I don't think the monster man in O'Gara would would have ever allowed that to bubble to the surface. On to Ulster matters, of course. We are the Ulster rugby roundup. We're not the La Rochelle roundup as much as we would like to hope that the La Rochelle Terrace board might pay for us to go back out there again to talk about them a bit more. Um, We do have plenty of listener questions coming in about Ulster squad announcement. We're going to start, though, with the brand new signing. Jeffrey Tumanga Allen, one-time all-black, tight head prop coming to Ulster for next season. He is essentially replacing Ross Kane in the squad, although I imagine he'll probably have a little bit of a bigger role in the squad than what Ross Kane did in, in the past season. 
Jonathan, what was your initial reaction to the signing of Mr. Tumang Allen, which I'm sure is going to take up a good bit of uh, the word count for the next few seasons? Uh, yeah, I think my reaction was fairly similar to a lot of people in that you were thinking about the tight head depth chart and thinking about the loose head depth chart and thinking about what this might mean, whether we'll see more of uh, Milosinovic, whether there's an acknowledgement that Tom O'Toole is going to be with Ireland for longer periods during what will obviously be a World Cup year when players are going to be more heavily managed. The confidence, I suppose, that it says about the loose head stock. Sorry, this is all obviously within the context of um, Jack McGrath's release the week before. Just, I think it's a particularly interesting signing for, for a lot of reasons. To qualify that, I suppose what I mean is it was a signing that probably raised more questions than it gave answers, regardless of his quality. Well, I'll bring in a question at this point then from Mark Smith, who asks, with Jack McGrath moving on at the end of the season, as you alluded to there, Jonathan, surely our priority should have been to replace him with an outstanding overseas loose head rather than recruiting a tight head where there is more strength. I guess this comes down to where Ulster see their need. And I, I find it hard to disagree with what Mark was saying there. I think Ulster's strength is more on their tight head side, where I think Murr and O'Toole are quality tandem in terms of number one and number two. And you know, if, even if you want to reverse that and you want to start O'Toole and bring Murr on from the bench, I, I think there's good rotation there. And Milosinovic has come through as a very solid option at, at number three as well. Whereas at Loosehead, look, Andy Warwick's having a great season. It's probably his best season as a prop so far since uh, since he's moved up to the Ulster senior team. But there just seems to be a little bit more, I want to say, flux over on the loose head than maybe there is on the tight head. So, look, certainly I would think if you were looking at bringing in an overseas player, I think loose head was the one that you were probably wanting to target as opposed to tight head. If you, if you were maybe bringing someone from another province, then by all means, if, if there's a tight head available, I I think there was probably a, a gap in the squad for someone to come in there. But if you're looking for a, for an overseas player, I think loose head is probably where you want to make a splash because I think if you're, if you're replacing one of the props with a, with a world-class operator from overseas, it's probably going to be work. Yeah, uh, that's nothing against Andy Warwick, especially after the way he's played this year. But yeah. I suppose that you do have to remember as well, and it's worth maybe bringing in the comments that Stephen Ferris made in today's newspaper that he doesn't think that this is a, a long-term signing, that this is a World Cup year next season. So recruitment will be, we will see that movement of player that we always see post-World Cup next season when Ulster will have Dwayne Vermeulen coming off the books. So you do have to view things in context of what's available now, what's helpful now. Obviously, Jack McGrath was still contracted for next year. So regardless of the situation, him not being on the books, regardless of how much, or sorry, regardless of whether the contract has been paid out for next year, there will still be additional budget available. And it could have boiled down to nothing more than it was viewed as better to have Alan than not have him, you know, with a view to the fact that Lucette is a more long-term need that they could address post-World Cup when players the calibre of Stephen Kitchoff will be out of contact. I suppose rather than discussing the merits of having or not having Tumang Allen, we should probably talk about what he will bring to the squad and, where do you see him fitting in? Because you, you brought up the Ferris comments there. He thinks Tumang Allen could be as far down as fourth choice here. Now, I, I don't think he's going to be that far down the packing order. I certainly think he he probably goes in above Milosinovic into third. But how much of a role do you see him playing? Like, Are, are we imagining him being a competitor to play in Heineken Cup games? Or is he just coming in as depth? I don't think you see him play in Heineken Cup games unless Marty Moore is out injured because, quite frankly, Marty Moore has done nothing to indicate that he shouldn't be first choice this season. Like Everybody predicted that Tom O'Toole was going to have taken that jersey by now 
and through the strength of performances that Murs put in this season when he's been very, very, very good all year to the point of, I think if he hadn't got injured, there would have been more serious calls for an Ireland recall this summer. But naturally, there are always going to be times when somebody's injured. So we're talking about it in a world where everybody's fit. And I just don't see, given the amount of development time that the RFU put into Tomotil, I don't see any situation where they allow, really, Ulster to field a Heineken Cup panel with Tom O'Toole outside the 23. I just don't see that. Um, When he does play, I think he'll bring a level of dynamism. We've seen how how well he carries um, very much. I think, I think everyone's seen that video of him with the with the line break for wasps and then chucking a no look backhand offload to <laughs> for the try. Yeah, so very very much a uh, a modern day prop. But um, as the if listener, he brings one of those every game, then I don't think anybody's going to be complaining. <laughs> yeah, just I suppose as the listener questions were leading to, I think um, we're all going to be interested to see how much he plays in those in those big games. Should Mur and O'Toole both be fit I, I put on Twitter uh, whenever he was signed I think he's the right signing at the wrong time I think Tumang Allen is the kind of player that you wanted Ulster to bring in whenever he initially joined Wasps whenever Tidehead was a little bit more of a problem position and whenever they really could have done with someone a la John Afoa like he, he's not the same calibre as John Afoa whenever he signed for Ulster but I think Tumang Allen is probably the kind of player that you would have loved to have seen either competing with Marty Murr for time or coming in instead of Marty Murr. No, nobody's going to complain about Marty Murr. And I'm, I'm certainly not. He, he's been superb for Ulster since he joined. But, you know, at, at that time, if Tumang Allen had arrived instead of Murr, I don't think anybody would have complained necessarily. So, you're completely complaining about Vian Herbs. You're just you're talking around the subject. <laughs> I mean, let's not beat around the bush. I don't think Vian <laughs> Herbs really lived up to the reputation he came with, did I? Uh, by Joe Schmidt, don't forget. But I, I think now, I, I think if Tumang Allen is anything but a short-term signing, then you're probably looking at it and questioning why. If he is just a short-term signing, then to plug a gap in the squad for the next year. I think they've done a good job at going out there because, I mean, you've also got to bear in mind Ulster were initially trying to hold on to Jack McGrath for another year. I know he was playing on the other side of the scrum, but essentially they've they've had to go out and recruit a prop specifically because they've lost Jack McGrath. Like, I don't think Tamang Allen comes in if McGrath doesn't leave and, and potentially Kean as well. Kean's decision to leave might have been a late one. So, realistically who are you going out there to get besides someone on a short-term deal and someone who is quite experienced like you like for, he is only a one-time all black but you don't get called up to the all blacks unless you have something about you he has won a super rugby title with the hurricanes he has played in new zealand in england he has plenty of experience so at the very least he's going to be a good person to learn off for some of the guys in the squad so well like that was mentioned as well by Don McFarland obviously like the role that he will play with the young props and we talk about the Lucid situation obviously you've got Callum Reid and I suppose this essentially means that George Saunderson is fourth choice Lucid and we've seen this season that the fourth choice will get minutes they are going to be required and you know Dan did mention that idea of how good it will be to learn off a former All Black, albeit a one-cap All Black, four guys like that. And, you know, you even think of, like, Eric O'Sullivan. Like, Eric O'Sullivan still isn't tremendously experienced, um, especially for a prop. So I think that's a good point that you make as well in terms of what he can give to the squad maybe off the field over the course of the year as well. We've almost talked ourselves into this now. <laughs> I know, just it's amazing how cathartic it is just, like, <laughs> putting all the arguments out there. Look, it all depends on what his role is. I think that that is the most important thing. Ulster, whenever they sign a player, they, they don't put roles on them. They don't say this guy's going to just 
provide depth during the Six Nations. They don't say he's coming in to start every game for us. You get For certain guys, you know what kind of role they're going to play. Whenever they sign Dwayne Vermeulen, they're not going to have him riding the pine every week. They're going to have him starting number eight every time he's available. But for a guy like Tumang Allen, if he comes in, he fills a gap whenever they need him and he goes away having added something to the squad, then I don't think you can argue with his signing given when it's come in the year and the kind of player that Ulster were looking for. But if they're relying on him to come in and play big minutes in Heineken Cup games, in knockout games, without injuries, taking Marty Murr and Tom Uto out of the squad, then I think they probably haven't signed the right person. They need to go out and look for something better. But certainly if this is the kind of profile that they're looking for just to just to play a few games whenever they need them to I, I can't complain with this signing and this, this is the pitfall that Ulster find themselves in where they, they brought in Vermeulen everyone now expects everyone to be the quality of Vermeulen but sometimes you do need someone to fill fill a gap in the squad and to be honest it was probably either Chumang Allen or you're looking at bringing someone in on loan from another province for a year and I think ideally you probably want to avoid that scenario as much as possible, just in order so that you're not, you know, essentially training someone up to send them back to another province. You want someone that you are going to invest in long term or someone who you know is going to leave at the end of the season and you haven't necessarily just made them better for someone else. You have used them to bolster your squad. I think part of it as well is not even so much people expecting another Dwayne Vermeulen, but I think a lot of it, and this was probably mentioned again by Stephen Ferris in his Premier Sports interviews during the week, a lot of people still expect the sort of four-star players that we, you know, we had in 2010 with, or sorry, 2011 with Pinar, Afoa, Wannenberg, and Johan Muller. And I do think it is an interesting debate that every Irish rugby team is going to face moving forward because we are probably beyond the days of having those four world-class Springbok all-black wallabies whatever filling all your NIQ needs as it were but equally I can very much see the point of not even so much the financial implications of it but if you're bringing in a player to take the spot of an Irish qualified player should it not be somebody that is going to instantly improve your starting 15? As well, you said, here's, Adrian here's the theoretical question for you then. And it's not a listener question. It's, a, it's an Adam listener question. <laughs> You're the host. You can ask whatever questions you want. True. <clears throat> Would you have four... I don't want to say average because you, you, you're not going to go out and sign average imports, but would you have four good imports to bolster your squad or two world-class imports? And taking it taken in the context of the Ulster squad at the moment, we've got all, all three of Vermeulen, Tumang Allen and Carter are coming out of contract at the end of next season. If you are Brent Cunningham looking at season 2023-24, are you going out to try and make a splash with two big import signings or would you bolster your squad with more import signings? It's a very good question. I suppose one that depends on the level of the four imports. I mean, are we talking about Heineken Cup starter quality or are we talking about, I suppose, anything below that? Because... For me, if I was looking at the Ulster squad, I mean, what I would do if those were the options available to me would probably be go out and try and sign a world-class loose head and either a world-class back rower or a world-class lock. I understand that Henderson's there, but just through international commitments is going to miss so much time with Ulster that I think you can still make the arguments that they're going to end up a little bit light in the second row at times during the season. See, for, for me, that's where I slightly differ. Like if you're if you're talking about someone who's only going to be filling in for Henderson whenever he's away with Ireland. No, sorry, sorry pre- I mean playing alongside Henderson um, whenever they're both fit. And you've obviously then got 
quality in the likes of Alan O'Connor for all those games that Henderson misses. Plus, obviously, it's a squad game, so playing as well. But I mean, I, I don't, I don't dislike the Henderson O'Connor duo. So to me, that would that would open up the possibility of maybe saving a bit of money and investing it elsewhere by bringing in someone who's maybe going to be a squad filler lock as opposed to a top quality lock. You've also got Kieran Treadwell in there. So you're, you're more looking at the the depth chart a wee bit further down for me, potentially. Possibly. I, I think that argument would lend me more towards looking at bringing in a world-class backer rather than looking at bringing in more imports and other positions because you look at and La Rochelle are the perfect example. You look at where games in the very, very highest level are won and lost and like do La Rochelle win the Heineken Cup without essentially importing a player of a size that they cannot produce themselves and that's what we're talking about with uh, with All-Star. Sorry, I'm talking about Will Skelton obviously. But if you put a Will Skelton type plus a, for the sake of argument, Stephen Kitschoff type. And this is all very hypothetical, but if you put those two players in Ulster's pack, it transforms the whole team. And that's no slight on the players that are there. We're just talking, I suppose, in nothing more than physicality sticks and a level of physicality that cannot be created in a gym. I want to bring a, a listener question in here at this point. It doesn't quite correlate to what we're talking about at the moment, but in, in a way, I do want to kind of bring it towards what we're talking about. Ian Frizzell asks, has Dwayne Vermeulen lived up to his reputation on the pitch or has he been overshadowed by Timoney and Ray? How valuable will he be in this big knockout game against the likes of O'Mahony and Byrne? We'll address that second point a little bit later, but... You, you, you know, you, we're talking about looking at maybe a, a world-class back rower and we're assuming that this is Vermeulen's sort of swan song. He's, he's not going to sign a, an additional contract at Ulster beyond the end of next season and he's going to retire after the World Cup. Bringing in a, a back rower to replace Vermeulen, I think Ulster should 100% be going down sort of the big Fijian route or something like that, bringing in someone along the lines of like even even someone like Sione Calamathoni, who is still ripping it up for the Scarlets at the age of late, late 30s that he just seems to go on forever. You know, someone like that, almost a la Nick Williams, that they can just turn to and know that they're going to make them yards. They still have not had that number eight since William le- Williams left. And for me, that's one thing that is missing from this Ulster pack. You know, somebody that's going to give you reliable go-forward ball because to go with Ian's question, I think Vermeulen hasn't been sort of that big rampaging number eight that everyone expected them, him to be. You know, whenever he was signed, everyone thought this is the big gut-busting through-the-middle ball carrier that we've been waiting for and he's going to be a, an absolute powerhouse in that back row but the truth is Vermeulen isn't that kind of number eight he's the kind of number eight that really brings a set piece together and I think I don't think he was ever that player no no that like this this is the point that I'm trying to make Ulster didn't sign a big ball carrying number eight they signed Dwayne Vermeulen who is one of the most technically gifted number eights to play the modern game yeah he's not he's not Marcel could say a mark two or I suppose mark one as it were but um (laughs) You know, he is the guy that has kept Marcel Garcia out of the Springbok back row for the better part of a decade. So Yeah, because he's essentially the glue to a lot of things that you don't necessarily see. You know, it he, he wins turnovers, which you expect from your blind side or your open side, not your number eight, but he does it. He makes big tackles, which you would expect from your flankers, not your number eight. But he just rounds out a back row very well and then in the, in the mall, you've heard Dan McFarlane say it so often, but there's there's no doubt that he is one of the best mall operators in world rugby. So in, in some regards, I think it's, it's almost like he's being typecast into a role that he's not being asked to fulfill within Ulster. 
But at the same time, I think if Ulster were looking to replace him beyond the World Cup, I would like to see them go more down the route of a Nick Williams or a... Well, ideally, you'd have Marcel Garcia back, but I think Nick Williams, for me, is the kind of player that, that you want to bring in, someone who you can just turn to and say, here's the ball, go run through six guys. Yeah, I mean, I think that you hope, and I completely understand. Part, so personally, first off, I think Dwayne Vermeulen has probably been as advertised. I think when you talk to guys about him, when you talk to coaches about him, and probably crucially, when you look at what Ulster's strengths have been, it's no coincidence, I don't think, that Ulster's strengths are his strengths. But I agree with you in what you're saying, in that the hope is that that intellectual property that you've essentially purchased by bringing in a big import has a trickle-down effect. So his level of knowledge about the mall and mall defence you like to think it's been passed on to the likes of Marcus Ray and Nick Timoney so that they have that moving forward and that you do or that you can then go out and buy that, I suppose, crash ball number eight that people are looking for in the vein of Nick Williams, in the vein of Marcel Garcia. Because, you know, you look at the way Ulster even played against the Sharks and like Dwayne Vermeulen's wearing number eight, but when Ulster set up to attack off the base of a scrum. They're switching Timoney into it and they're setting Timoney on the charge, you know. Um, Dwayne Vermeulen is not that guy. As I said before, he wasn't signed to be that guy either. But I think this year and even this week has really driven home the point of the level of physicality that you need, whether it be with ball in hand or whether it be without the ball. And I suppose to circle back to this very start of this conversation, that's what you need to buy. That's what you need to import. That's what you need to spend the money on because Ulster don't have it themselves with, I suppose, very few exceptions. And when you say very few exceptions, you're going back, I suppose, what, 20 years and saying in that time, Ulster have produced probably Henderson and Ferris. And Stuart McCloskey. McCloskey, yeah. So I was thinking forwards, but yeah. Chris Farrell, I suppose, yeah. Obviously, we are talking about the 2023-24 season at, at the moment. Let's bring it back a little bit. You wouldn't bit. think there was a game on this week? No, you wouldn't. And we're not, not even get, we're not even going to get to that yet because we have one more listener question that we need to answer before we move on to the Munster game. Uh, and that is Andrew Moffat asking, how are we feeling about the squad for next year? And he then... Uh, specifies is loose head depth the only concern Ulster did confirm their squad for next season uh, earlier this week after the announcements that Jack McGrath Sean Reedy Dave O'Connor and the and the other guys will be moving on Ross Kane Bradley Roberts we already knew about they also confirmed that Angus Curtis has been given a new one-year deal that was one that we were all a little bit confused about because he was the only player left in the squad without a deal for next season and seemingly have been forgotten about and then he appeared in the squad list for next season. It wasn't quite like the year where they just forgot to announce Rob Herring's contract. Do you remember that? It was like he signed the extension and then he just turned up for pre... Uh, nobody said anything. He just turned up for pre-season training. Yeah. Um, that was the ultimate. Oh, we just forgot about that. <laughs> How are you feeling about the squad for next year, Johnny? Are, are you thinking that Ulster is still a little bit light in positions? Where do you see the strengths and weaknesses being? Yeah, I mean, not to sign doom and gloom, but I always worry about prop depth because, you know, we saw it ahead of that Edinburgh game and I suppose to eat a little bit of humble pie there as well. Like, obviously, I don't think I was on the podcast the week after. Um, but the scrum was not an issue, despite me predicting that the, the whole house was going to fall down because of it. Um, so credit where it was due to those guys that, uh, that did hold it up. But you always feel you can sort of weather one injury uh, but then if you have two injuries uh, to the same side of the scrum, obviously, then you're thinking um, it's almost an emergency. Um, so I think that's always going to be a concern. I think if you get Stockdale and Addison back and we see a continuation of Luke Marshall's return, then I think you have depth in the backs 
that would be the envy of anybody, certainly in the ERC. Just on the Luke Marshall note, by the way, just while you mentioned it, Mark Marhead did ask, where is Luke Marshall? He has suffered a little recurrence of the injury that he had, so it looks like he's probably going to be out for the rest of the season, but he will be back next season. I think, you know, we sort of touched on the idea of Henderson missing time with Ireland and stuff and what that means for the second row. But I think what you really need to see beyond that to make you feel better about the depth is the emergence of another back rower. Obviously, Marcus Ray. I don't know whether it's fair to say jumped ahead of the queue or re-established himself at the head of the queue this season. Um, but whether it be Dave McCann, whether it be Ruben Carruthers, I think you need to see another option there. And then... The well, I think I think there's a good bit of excitement about Sean Raffle. You know, someone who is coming over from Saracens, a team that are pretty well-renowned for a decent pack, that wolf pack sort of mentality. And he was coming over as, I think they're... I can't remember exactly what award he won, but it was either like Players Player of the Year, Supporters Player of the Year, or something last season. So it's he comes over pretty well, uh, pretty well endorsed, if we want to say, if we want to say that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I think really what you're looking at from the Ulster squad beyond that then is that the improvement of guys like. Hume, Laurie, Timoney, Balakun, etc., 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 is greater than the natural decrease that's going to happen with some of the older guys. Obviously, Dwayne Vermeulen being the oldest player in the squad, but an awful lot of those sort of very consistent players that you've had that are sort of in the 28, 29, 30 range. And if that happens, I think they'll be in a very similar position to. This season, and I understand that being in a very similar position to this season isn't enough to fill some people with optimism. Um, but, you know, we've talked about it before. In When lacking, I suppose, any game-changing signings, if that's fair to say, then what you're really looking at is the continued improvement of what you have. Ulster could still win silverware at the end of this season, of course. I can't overlook that fact, but in a year's time, do you see the squad that Ulster have assembled and announced on Monday being a potential trophy-winning squad? It's a potential trophy-winning squad in the sense that they can beat Leinster on their day in a one-off game. I don't the see usual, the usual qualifier of on their day. Yeah, absolutely, and obviously they've done it twice this year, but I don't see it being a better squad than Leinster if that's what you're essentially asking in terms of is it the best goal in the league? No, I don't think it is. That's always the question, isn't it? Anytime you ask, is this a trophy-winning squad, you're essentially asking, are they better than Leinster? Yeah, I mean, Leinster are the roadblock in the ERC, as they should be, given that they're four-time winning champions. Now, obviously, I don't think that narrative takes a hit at all, given what happened in Europe or what has happened in Europe for the past, or, you know, since 2018, until somebody knocks them off in the ERC, because... You know, for the length of time that we've been doing this podcast, we've been talking about somebody beating Leinster in a knockout game from this league on their day. And it hasn't happened. It's always been Leinster's day whenever it gets down to the sharp end of this competition. So, look, I, I still think what I thought at the start of this season, like if Ulster play Leinster in a final, they're capable of beating them. But if the league was to be a straight around Robin, if you're going to ask me, do I think Ulster will finish ahead of Leinster, then... No, I don't. I didn't before this season and I don't for next season. Of course, as I mentioned there, Ulster can still win silverware this year and it all starts this weekend as the playoffs get underway in earnest. The ERC reaches its quarterfinals and it all kicks off on Friday night when Ulster face Munster at Ravenhill at 7.35pm. For Munster, it looks like they're going to have a lot of players back. Tag Byrne looks like he's going to be back. Andrew Conway's going to be back. Peter Manny's going to be back. Everything seems to be going the right way for them. It looks like it could be really, really nicely poised here, Jonathan, to use some journalistese. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, because um, 
Like this isn't uh, revolutionary in any way, but Munster are far better team when they have those big players. I understand that everybody is a better team when they have their better players playing. But shocker. Yeah, but you really do feel. I hope you don't lead your team news off with that. <laughs> you really do feel that Munster, and I'm I suppose specifically talking about Peter O'Mahony and Damien Dealande, look a completely different team when those guys play than when they don't. And then you throw the idea of. Tag Byrne in the mix, who let's not overlook the fact was probably one of Ireland's two or three best players in 2021 and was continuing in the same vein through 2022 before getting injured. Obviously, there will be a considerable amount of rust there having not played since the Six Nations, but it's a huge boost for Munster, I think, to get him back aligned with what on the whole was a very, very positive uh, squad update that they put out. Well, I think whenever you consider who will probably make way for Byrne, and that is probably going to be Thomas Ahern, if if you put Byrne in the second row alongside John Klein, then that's a heck of an impact that you're going to have off the bench, bringing on Ahern, the natural freak of an athlete that he is. I remember chatting to our colleague Michael Corcoran from uh, RTE Radio whenever they were down for the Munster game last time, the, the league game a few weeks ago. And he was saying he went down to, to a schools game and Ahern was playing on the wing, all six foot seven of them. And he's saying, you know, who's, who's that boy in the wing? Six foot seven lanky kid who every time he got the ball just sort of took three strides and was over the line. So it, he's the kind of player that I think is probably unlucky that he might make way. But the fact that you're bringing someone like Byrne back in and then Omani's just turned himself into the stereotypical big game player. Like he just, he just rocks up for these big games and takes his game up three or four more levels. Like it's, it's insane that he's still managing to do it at this time in his career when arguably this is the time you probably think he's maybe considering, you know, life beyond rugby and thinking, you know, how am I winding my career down? He just seems to keep getting better. Yeah, I mean, like when you look, ever you look at those European games, um, both against Exeter and Toulouse, he was uh, he was absolutely superb. He is only thirty two, um, younger than me. I would stress, whatever. While you're putting him out to pasture there, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Un- I think, unintentional, I, I promise. <laughs> yeah, if you uh, if you look at what Monster do well, again. Anybody that spends any time watching them knows that if Munster get their uh, get their breakdown right, get the collision area right, win the collisions, and get their physicality at the pitch that it needs to be, they're very, very hard to beat. What I would say is that much more so than other top teams, and I would still include Munster as a top team, they do seem to have more days when they don't get that pitch right. We so I I know. It wasn't a full, full strength monster team, but we saw that against Leinster where they just were not at the races and it was almost like they let the occasion get to them and it's going to be a different monster team that shows up. They are going to have all those players back, but you just wonder if this monster team maybe aren't quite at that position yet of being ready to play in the big games. You know, they they didn't get it done against Toulouse in the quarter or sorry in the semi-finals of the sorry it was the quarterfinals I'm getting mixed up with all the different rounds the fact that yeah, you're, you're forgetting about the last 16 being in yeah. Senate, so yeah, yeah. Um, but like they, they didn't manage to get it done in the quarterfinals of the Champions Cup against Toulouse you, you look at that age profile of some of the guys that they're bringing in you talk about Ahern Alex Kandalan you know guys who are still very young in their development playing in key positions as well it's it's a lot to ask of them whenever they don't have the likes of Omani beside them. So that's going to change for this week. But I just wonder if they're if they're almost a year behind Ulster in their development and that Ulster have now sort of brought a few guys on so that they have that experience of knockout rugby. Munster still maybe in that position of weaning guys into that position. It's an interesting point because I was going to ask you like what your thoughts are that for all the talk of differing provincial identities and all that there, I would say these two teams are probably more similar than any in terms of profile in the ERC because we're talking about a lot of promising young players coming through 
that it is hoped are going to continue to get better for another three, four, five years. A couple of players in their prime who are very, very important, whether that be at the tail end of their prime or smack dab in the middle of their prime, who are very, very important to the way that they play. And then even right down to the uh, big Springbok import in terms of Dale Onday and Vermeulen, different positions, obviously, but um, they're very, very similar teams, not in terms of the way that they play, but the age profiles of the squad. And I think most crucially and most frustratingly for both, their um, relatively consistent failure to win big games like this one, with the difference being on Friday that one of them has to win. Or we could just go to extra time and then have a penalty shootout. And <laughs> do we really count that as a win? <laughs> well, I would bag also to win a penalty, uh, a penalty shootout, given that they could have any number of uh, goal kickers on the field in Cooney, Burns, Doke will co- could come on for one of them. Robbie Little could play fullback. Stuart McCloskey's had some kicks in the past. Stuart McCloskey's had a few kicks, yep. I'm just waiting for Nathan Duke to come on the front row just to have that extra kicker on the pitch, like in the in the 105th minute of extra time or something like that. Yeah, I suppose the, the issue with, well, sorry, you could theoretically, I suppose, have an HIA situation um, or a blood sub situation, but the thing with Robbie is you've normally used all of your subs by that stage, and I think I'm right in saying in football you get extra subs during extra time, don't you? I think you get one extra. Yeah, Obviously, you can't, you can't you can't do that in rugby because you're allowed to use all your substitutes in normal time, and yeah, most so, most coaches do tend to do that anyway. But yeah, so you're you're not going to have a situation really unless it is, as I say, NHI or a blood sub where you can sort of finagle an extra goal kicker onto the pitch. Although we did sort of see that, not that there was anything untoward about it, but we did sort of see that in the uh, Monster Toulouse game with Zebra so off the HIA. I thought you were going to refer to Bloodgate there. <laughs> uh, I, I was going to actually ask, do you think it's as simple for Munster? And I know we're kind of focusing a lot on Munster here. We will get to the Ulster part of the conversation, I promise. But I was going to ask, is it as simple for Munster as replicating the game plan that they brought to Ravenhill last time, whenever they won a, a few weeks ago? But then I suppose whenever you think about that game, you sort of think surely Ulster can't be that bad again. Like we, we don't really know if the Munster game plan truly worked because Ulster were just so far off their game that maybe it only took an extra two, three percent and Ulster would have had a few more tries and they would have won that game. So well, how do you think the two teams will, will approach the game tactically? Because I, I imagine Ulster will probably think to themselves, we've, got this game in the bag if we just produce a little bit more than what we did last time because at the end of the day they were so far off their game in that match and yet they were still in a position where they could have snatched it at the very end if they had managed to go the length of the pitch yeah absolutely like I think you're bang on on what you said like I don't think we can take very much from that game at all because you talk about Munster needing to get their pitch right. Well, I don't think there's been a better example of Ulster not getting to the required pitch all season, really. You can possibly look to that Connacht game in in the Aviva, but Ulster were so detached from what they can be that day that um, it's near impossible, I think, to conceive that they would be that bad again. But, you know, we, get, we can talk about tactics and we can talk about approach, but I think these are two teams that, are fairly consistent in what they do. You know, Munster are going to attack you at the breakdown. Ulster have to find a way to negate that, whether that be moving the point of contact, whether that be ensuring that Cooney and Duke get quick ball and they get it away <laughs> quickly as possible to the likes of McCluskey. I think we're going to see an awful lot, especially with burnback of monster not even having to pick and choose their rucks because what they can do is pick and choose who attacks each ruck i think that's something that ulster really have to deal with i, th- um, I think it, it wouldn't be surprising for me to see chris cloda playing and just causing absolute mayhem at the at the rock especially with yako piper's referee like he's he's a superb referee but you know rightly he's going to let it be a free-for-all at the breakdown 
yeah yeah for sure um i don't know i don't know whether that uh i don't know whether that suits monster or ulster better really given the way that um uh monster will look to uh have the breakdown as their real sort of area of superiority but um and then from an ulster point of view like there's been a lot of talk and there's been a lot of talk even in our listener questions and stuff about style but like Ulster aren't going to change what to this point in the season has been a winning formula. I know I said about big games being different and maybe needing something that little bit different against a good team that I, or a big team that I would count Monster as, but like, you know, we're going to see a reliance on them all. We're going to see Ulster's line out having to be absolutely on point. We're going to see, real line speed in defence, led by the likes of McCloskey, led by the likes of James Hume, and trying to ensure that Munster can't get into an attacking pattern. And let's not overlook home advantage either, because I think there's a real onus on the Ulster crowd to make the most of the fact that this game is in Ravenhill, because let's be honest, we knew that Ulster and Munster were going to be in the playoffs really from what, November, December? Like the last three or four months of this season have been about ensuring that you had home advantage in the playoffs. So make it count, you know, make it a hostile place to come and play. Jonathan with his weekly appeal to the fans to (laughs) come out in their numbers. Give me your thoughts, Jonathan. Who's going to be walking into the semi-finals and who's going to be jetting off on an early holiday provided their flight is not cancelled? <laughs> well, yeah, there's a real chance that whoever wins is going to be jetting off long haul because they could be going to Cape Town. Um, there's, a, there's every chance they might not make it through the queues at certain airports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if Ulster... Well, no, sorry. We, we shouldn't name any airlines that'll get us in trouble. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think Ulster are going to win. I think it would be massively disappointing for them if they don't, to the point where I think you would have to say that if they don't win, then this season will feel like a step backwards. I think Ulster are going to win. But uh, yeah, I, I can't disagree. I think if if you come to the end of the season, you've lost in the home leg of your Heineken Cup last 16 tie, having won the away leg, and you've been knocked out at home in the quarterfinals of the URC. Like, not only is it bad that you've been knocked out in the first knockout round of each competition, but you've been knocked out at home twice. Like, I think that's that's something that will really sit with them over the summer. And it's something you really don't want to have hanging over you going into next season as well. So very, very quickly, just before we go, the other quarterfinals this weekend, Leicester take on Glasgow, the Stormers take on Edinburgh, and the Bulls face the Sharks. Jonathan, I want your three other semi-finalists and how our last four is going to shake up. I think Ulster will win on Friday. I'm not going out on a limb here by saying I think Leicester will win. Shocker. You're making some bold predictions so far. <laughs> I don't think Edinburgh have it in them to go and beat the Stormers in Cape Town, as obviously Edinburgh have already won in South Africa this season, but I don't think they're going to do it in the playoffs. And I think the Stormers are building and building and building as this season has went on. Um, I might I might take the Sharks, you know. I could be uh, I could be talked into thinking the Sharks are going to go to the Bulls and win. Yeah, those were the four that I had. But part of me thinks the Bulls are also going to get it done as well. I, I don't want to be as boring as to say four home quarterfinal wins, but I think it could easily go that way. Like the, the Bulls Sharks one for me, plus Ulster Monster are the two that could are most likely to swing the other way. I was going to say whenever you started that sentence, I was like, let's be honest, the one that's most likely to swing the other way is probably Monster winning. <laughs> like. I saw people getting frustrated that certain people were saying that Munster would have been happy with a trip up to up to Ulster in the quarterfinals. Like those people weren't wrong. <laughs> like Munster would have been looking at the teams they could have played in the quarterfinals. Ulster was a hundred percent the least of all the evils. Well, just because of the travel, like until somebody exactly. goes and wins a knockout game in South Africa, it's going to be something that everybody wants to avoid. Regardless exactly. of seeding, I think. 
a hundred percent like the travel and we, we've spoken about this on previous podcasts the travel is one of the biggest factors in the playoffs in the ERC and will be the other way as well you know we can't overlook the fact that somebody is going to win a game on Saturday and then have to fly to the northern hemisphere to play Leinster mm-hmm. and if the semi if the quarterfinals go the way that we predict there will then you're going to have Ulster traveling one way to the Stormers and either the Bulls or the Sharks heading the other way to face Leicester. So it's it's going to be an interesting look at the semifinals and just to see potentially how lopsided they are. But that's for next week's podcast, whenever we get stuck into the final four, hopefully with Ulster involved. You can follow all the action from Ravenhill on Friday night with myself on the live blog. As I said, 7.35 p.m. kickoff. We will have all the action and all the build-up from 6.45 p.m. Jonathan will be there too, but he will be on uh, report duty as per always. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us. Things over to you and you can put them in the live blog. True, true. (laughs) You're always a good help to me. Jonathan, thank you very much for your company today. No bother. And thank you very much to all of you for listening, wherever you are watching or following the rugby from on Friday night. We hope you enjoy it. And we will see you again on the Ulster Rugby Roundup next week.